Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. The San Francisco Bay Area, where we're based, has its share of natural disasters. And back in October, I could barely see across the street. The air was thick with smoke. It triggered my asthma. My eyes were constantly bloodshot red as ashes rained down from the sky. Eight counties to the north, including Napa and Sonoma, famous for their vineyards, burned for weeks. Hi, um, we need fire engines out here immediately. I mean, we needed them out here an hour ago. These wildfires would prove to be the deadliest in California's history. Yes, I had to drive out because I would have died if I stayed. How big is the fire, do you know? In all, 44 people lost their lives. Back in March, we partnered with KQED in San Francisco to investigate the first hours of those fires and the emergency response. KQED reporters Marisa Lagos, Lisa Pickoff-White, and Suki Lewis listened to thousands of 911 calls and dispatch recordings. Today on the podcast, we want to update you on what's happened since we first brought you that story. Later, we'll talk to the reporters about reforms that are taking place to make sure a similar tragedy doesn't happen again. First, I want to play you part of their original story and take you back to that night of Sunday, October 8th. The National Weather Service has issued a red flag warning signaling extreme fire danger And Cal Fire, the state agency that responds to wildfires, is on high alert. Suki Lewis and Marisa Lagos take the story from here. Around 7.30 in the evening, 911 dispatchers get a concerning call. Hey, it's Tony. I'm transferring a caller who's reporting. It sounds like a power line that was arcing. Okay. Sir? Yes. Go ahead. What is the address of the The man tells the dispatcher that winds knocked a power line into a tree. There are a lot of sparks, and this is a super high high fire danger area. um, But the power lines were definitely emitting sparks. Okay. What's that? Yeah. Okay. The dispatcher says someone is on the way, then makes this a top priority. She consults a computer screen to send the nearest engine out to respond. But the wind keeps picking up. About 20 minutes later, a woman dials 911 to report a transformer blowing miles away. Tell me again what happened. 
What's happening here is that high winds are knocking down power lines. These send out sparks, starting little fires. Then as lines go down, the electricity needs to go somewhere, so it gets redistributed. This overloads other lines, creating power surges. Transformers explode, taking down more of the electrical grid. Power lines are down. Request One structure will be in about 20 minutes. As CAL FIRE gets these reports, they contact PG&E, the local utility company. And together, they have the ability to do a few things. The utility can send out linemen to deal with individual incidents, or shut down power remotely, or a combination of both. But due to power lines, um, the northbound shoulder is going to be on fire until uh, PG&E can secure power for us. On that night, CAL FIRE and PG&E go by procedure, dealing with these incidents one by one, relying on linemen. They can't keep up. Information, we have multiple 911s ringing and not being able to answer. This is when you can first hear things getting out of control. It's like a game of whack-a-mole. CAL FIRE's map is getting crowded. They're running out of people to send, even as new fires break out. Like to the point where Cal Fire told us they've got no more resources, can't send to anybody. <laughs> With no one to send to put out all these small fires, two blazes explode almost simultaneously, about 30 miles apart. In the forested hills of Sonoma County, gusts of wind are sweeping up burning tree branches and debris and hurling these embers miles through the air. The blaze starts jumping from one mountain peak to another, leapfrogging valleys, racing through Napa vineyards, and devouring homes across both counties. And it's now rushing toward the city of Santa Rosa, home to 175,000 people. And for firefighters, it's becoming clear these fires they're facing are of a different order. Cal Fire Captain Jeff Hogue is in the middle of all of this. He's like the voice of God to his troops. All night long, firefighters hear him on the radio, taking their calls and coordinating their response. From the Cal Fire War Room, Hogue sends out a reminder, crackling over the radio. The priority of the unit is safety of the public, rescue, as well as safety of the rescuer. Do what you can. Safety for the public. Safety for the rescuer. Do what you can. What that means is putting out fires isn't the priority anymore. For firefighters, the singular focus is saving human lives, including their own. At 10.30, CAL FIRE starts calling local law enforcement agencies in Napa and Sonoma to initiate evacuations. In this game of telephone, you can hear a lot go wrong. Hi, it's Michelle. I need a reverse 911 done. Okay. So Cal Fire needs it for the Calistoga area, mandatory evacuations. This Cal Fire employee is asking a Napa County operator for a reverse 911. That's an evacuation alert that can target specific neighborhoods warning people fire is approaching. It calls home phones, but only about half of Americans have landlines these days. Copy. We'll advise CAL FIRE. Okay. 
Okay, I'm sorry, what's your question? Okay, so you say reverse 911, are you aiming Nixall or? I need you guys to send out a reverse 911 so we can tell them to evacuate. Okay, I'm just not, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with what a reverse 911 is. I'm sorry. This is another one of those places where you can hear the system breaking down. The operator doesn't even know what CAL FIRE is talking about. But that's actually because each county in California, there are 58, uses different technologies with different names to alert people. To CAL FIRE, it's reverse 911. To NAPA, it's called Nixle. I think it's just Nixle. Okay, if it's going out to the public and everyone. Yeah, it needs to go to all their phones, landline and everything. Mandatory oh, landline. Evac- okay. Evacuation, yeah. In this call, CAL FIRE is requesting an evacuation order. But it still takes an hour before law enforcement officials in Napa issue text alerts to the public. They won't call people on their landlines until the next day. Over the course of the night, delay and confusion happen again and again. KQED reporters Marisa Lagos and Lisa Pickoff-White are here with me in the studio. And I gotta say, listening to that again, it's... It's really intense. Now, I know you guys got a lot of reaction with this story, but Marisa, it's now been more than six months since all those fires started. Do we know anything more about what sparked them? Well, we don't still know the official cause. Um, we are hearing that that may come out in the coming months, although these were many fires, right? So there will probably be many causes. But as we heard in our story, we know that there were fires that night that were caused by electrical lines. And so one of the things that's already sort of being worked out, even though we don't know if they caused the biggest fires, is how to prevent a similar situation from happening this fire season, which is fast approaching and really upon us. Okay, so we know that there were dozens of 911 calls about down power lines and arcing transformers. And Cal Fire and PG&E, the local utility company, they told you that it wasn't their policy to shut down the grid when there's these high winds going on. Has that changed at all? It has. Um, We have seen a series of conversations between Cal Fire and PG&E in recent months, and they have basically come to a place where this is going to be part of policy. Cal Fire knows they can ask for it, and PG&E is on board with something we should note has been happening in other parts of the state already with other utilities. And so a lot of the sort of reasons we heard that it wasn't uh, a good idea seem to have sort of been swept aside by this, you know, an event of this magnitude. And I think when we hear shutting down the power grid, we imagine like a whole city going dark. But really, this can be targeted very specifically. We've already seen in Southern California, they can just shut off the power to 100 homes, you know, in a really high-risk area, for instance. You guys reported a lot on how residents woke up to flames at their doorsteps and that officials... They had serious problems communicating with one another around when to issue alerts and evacuation warnings. How are officials beginning to address these problems? Well, one of the big things that's happening is a state senator has proposed legislation that would create one alert system for California. I mean, we have 58 counties here, and each one has basically a different way of contacting people. And that's one of the big problems that we saw during the fires. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we saw here was that these sort of very rigid systems are not always going to work during a disaster that's moving quickly and is unpredictable. And so I think all these counties and 
and at the state level are kind of reexamining whether those structures can be a little more fluid and a little more responsive. And so, you know, maybe that means that not just law enforcement, but people in the dispatch center can call for evacuations like we're looking at in Sonoma and Napa. Okay, so I get Amber Alerts every now and then. And to be honest, they, they always startle me. Why wasn't this used for these fires? I mean, it just makes sense that I should get buzzed if maybe my house is going to be burned down. First of all, some of this was actually sort of a culture issue in the sense that you had these county officials who were like, we don't want to clog the roads with people and they could die in their cars if everybody is sitting in traffic trying to escape. And I think some of that we've just sort of pushed past that they realize that it's far worse to For leave them to people. burn in their house. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of logistical issues. I mean, Napa wasn't even empowered to send out Amber Alerts. Sonoma County decided not to. I mean, the answer is a combination of procedure and bureaucracy. Um, but essentially, the long of the short of it is that I think next time you would get that alert. It's also had an impact on the national stage. Uh, these fires helped spark um, change with the Federal Communications Commission, where now, you know, those kinds of amber alert, for instance, there has to be a longer character limit. Those alerts can go out to more specific areas, and they also need to be able to be sent in Spanish. And other big things that are happening, several senators have proposed some major changes to how the U.S. Forest Service budgets. Actually, last year is one of our most expensive firefighting seasons nationally. And what has happened is that they're borrowing from prevention efforts like forest cleaning to pay for that firefighting. And so this bill would actually change that so that both have more dedicated funding streams. So the mutual aid system, which was first developed here in California, and it's now standard across the country, basically, if you're a fire department and you become overwhelmed, you can call other fire departments for help. Right. But in your story, Cal Fire Unit Chief Anna Lee Burlew explained that the system broke during the fires. Sonoma's depleted. They have a major fire going. They call Napa. Napa has a major fire going. They don't have any resources to send. They call Lake. Lake County is depleted. They have a major fire going. So they call their closest neighbor, Mendocino. Mendocino has a major fire going. They don't have any resources to send. So what can officials do to make sure this same thing doesn't happen again? We talked to fire chiefs who said you could have had every firefighter in the world available and they still couldn't have stopped these things once they started going. So I think a lot of what they're looking at is trying to stop fires from getting this big to begin with. Um, we have a request from fire chiefs around the state and fire unions to put $100 million into extra staffing at the local level and into new, more modern engines and equipment and gear. And CAL FIRE is really looking at getting better at staging equipment ahead of time. So when we know that, say, in Sonoma, there's a red flag warning and it's hot and dry, we put engines there from the get-go. So they're not trying to travel across the state once a fire breaks out. Yeah, and part of this is also acknowledging that because of climate change, we're having fires all year now. And so one of the things that we use to fight fires a lot here in California, for instance, is planes and helicopters. So one idea is to put the money into it so we can keep these places where those helicopters and planes come from open year-round. So that if there is a fire in the winter, like there was in Southern California this year, you know, they're ready for it. And then there's also this issue of micro-targeting these red flag warnings. So instead of saying an entire region is at risk, they could say one valley or one city should really be on high alert. And I think, again, you're never going to stop every fire from starting. But once it does break out, can we get there and put it out quickly? So much of this story is about where we live, like right outside the Bay. It's California. But is this a national story? Do other states and, and communities need to be worried about these same issues? 
I think so, because if you look at the sort of crux of a lot of the reason that people either lost property or lives, it's things that, you know, have to do with the fire but have nothing to do with the fire, like emergency alerts, like understanding what the risks are of where you live and being prepared to sort of put into place a plan for your family and the people around you. So I think that no matter where you live in the world, there are risks and there are increasing risks because our climate is changing. And so even if you live somewhere which would never burn, you probably live somewhere which might flood. You know, one thing we found that will stay with me forever is something that sounds a little harsh, but it's kind of this idea that you're on your own. I mean, if if a big disaster hits, you need to know that for the first few days, potentially, nobody may be able to get to you. Even with all the technology and sort of connections we have, all of that stuff is really fragile and any disaster can take it down. Yeah. And I'm originally from New York and my own family was really impacted by Hurricane Sandy. And and I have family now in Florida and places like this. And I think one of the really hard questions that we as a people have to answer now is, you know, should I keep living here? What has changed? How do I need to change? I've seen people who have lived for generations in the same place, and they're like, really, you want me to move because I'm in a high fire risk area? And I, I really get that, and I think that's something that a lot of Americans have to grapple with. Before we go, I want to play one last portion of your story. Greg and Christina Wilson survived the fire by hiding in their swimming pool with their dog, Max. Their house completely burned to the ground around them, and Greg's lungs were damaged in the fire, which caused him to speak with a whisper when you interviewed him. You know, you're, you're kind of in survival mode, and I'm not sure my, my brain's even thinking of anything else. It's just watching that house burn, and we're just hugging each other on the ground. Then Greg hears something. This low wail of a siren. And, I mean, it's, you know, it's just this low, quiet... And I'm like, honey, I think this thing's getting closer. And at that point, I just, I got up and I'm, I'm, I'm talking like this, but I'm just waving, screaming, hey. The Wilsons are saved by chance. One of their neighbors managed to call a cop she was dating who got Cal Fire to save them. Rescuers drive the Wilsons to a hospital. The last thing I remember, Christina was lying on a, a gurney. I was lying on a gurney with Max. And there was a nurse there saying, okay, I'm going to take Maximus. And then they said, and then we're going to knock you out. Greg and Christina, covered in burns, are put into a medically induced coma. Nurses have to move them to another facility because even the hospital catches fire. Their dog, Max, is alive but is nearly blind. I have to say I'm very impressed with my wife. She didn't panic at all. I mean, the only thing you're worried about. You know, it's her. You know, you just kind of do what you do to survive, and we wanted her to live. So. Have you talked to them since? I mean, do you know how they're doing? I think they're doing okay. Um, Physically, they're doing a lot better. Greg's voice is back. They're both back at work. Uh, They're getting ready to move into a bigger house. They've been living in a kind of granny unit. But... I think for a lot of people, you know, the scars of these types of things don't heal that quickly. Wildfire season is just about to begin again. I mean, what's that like for survivors like Greg and Christina Wilson? I think it's tough. When I interviewed them, she talked about how they had a moment where she kind of panicked because they're up in the hills again and and they're surrounded by brush. And so there's a lot of trauma related to this. And I think the whole community is really trying to work through that. 
That was KQED's Marisa Lagos and Lisa Pickoff-White. They, along with Suki Lewis, continue to follow the aftermath of this story. You can follow their coverage at kqed.org slash wildfires. Thanks to KQED's Sonia Hudson and Peter Arcuni for additional reporting on these stories. Thanks to KQED for partnering with us on today's show. Reb Myers was our editor. Our production manager is Mwende Anaosa. Our sound design team is the dynamic duo Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, yo, Aruda. Our acting CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell is our editor-in-chief. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveals a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letton, and remember, there is always more to the story. <laughs>